You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you, Dr. Baldwin. Hey, good morning. I am so excited to see you all here. Uh, I know these are uh, unique circumstances that we start the semester with. My sincere hope is that as we progress through the semester, it gets a little warmer and maybe a little safer. We can make the adjustments we need to make as necessary uh, so that we can return to something that feels a little more normal. Nevertheless, we're going to have a good semester and we're going to have the fullness of the Asbury experience, even in light of the modifications we exist under right now. But it's great to see you. It's great that you're here. This campus is not the same without you. Well, as Dr. Baldwin mentioned, uh, we are talking about the mind of Christ. And today I, I'm looking at a passage of scripture, Exodus chapter 5, all the way through chapter 627. So I'm not going to read that right now, but let me just give you the highlights of what is found in that scripture. Uh, Moses and Aaron, prior to chapter 5, are told by God that they are the ones who are going to liberate the Israelites. They are the chosen ones. And of course, they're very excited about this. They go to Pharaoh and they make him aware and say, uh, the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. This doesn't go so well with Pharaoh. Uh, if you're a Pharaoh, you actually believe you are chosen by the universe or whatever. And moreover, this is an economic threat to Pharaoh. So how does he respond? He responds in a very unkind way towards the Israelites. He actually makes life more difficult for them. Some of them are beaten. And moreover, they have a brick quota and Pharaoh says, you have to continue to produce the same amount of bricks, but now we're going to give you less straw to do that. This doesn't go so well with the Israelites. Uh, they're very upset at Pharaoh, but they're really upset at Moses and Aaron. Look what you've done to us. You've made life even more difficult for us. And then Moses goes to God and he complains. He says this, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. In other words, Moses is saying, this is not the way things are supposed to go. Let me tell you a story from when I was your age in college. I'm guessing in fact, I'm quite confident you are a lot more mature than I was. One summer, I was working a basketball camp at the University of Louisville. It was with my best friend, and we had a gym. We worked with a few other coaches, and this was a Friday, and it was this beautiful, beautiful Friday. I think it was in June, and it was like two o'clock. We got done, and at basketball camps, at this one at least, they just gave you the money at the end of it, $200 cash. And you know, as a college student, $200 is like $200 million. <laughs> like, that's a lot of money. Like, my eyes lit up. So we're so excited. And my friend said, hey, what should we do right now? And I thought, well, my fishing poles are in the trunk. Let's go fishing. So there was a lake. 
it was in a adjoining county and we got in the car we just got paid it's a beautiful day out we're about to fish and i was driving irresponsibly in fact i was racing down this country road windows open our shirts are off we're singing the music on the radio we're just acting like idiots but there was a very sharp corner at the end of this particular country road that I was on, I didn't realize how sharp it was. And as I turned that corner, a sheriff was coming the other way. Not only did I nearly hit him, I ran him off the road. So it was one of those where you just start slowing down. You're like, what have I done? And immediately he zips around, pulls me over. Um, it is unrepeatable what he said to me the first 30 seconds before he even asked for my driver's license. That day, I was issued a reckless driving ticket. My parents were furious. It, it was a really, really terrible weekend, and all that excitement for fishing just totally went down the drain. That Monday, we showed up at the basketball camp. We were working another week, and one of the coaches we worked with, who was older than us, he said, Hey, boys, how was your weekend? I said, oh, it's terrible. I got a reckless driving ticket. We went fishing and told him the story. And he pondered this and he said, what county were you in? I said, I was in Bullitt County. He said, well, you're in luck. The judge in that county was the best man in my wedding. I'll give you his phone number. You can give him a call. He'll take care of it. Now, let me pause this story right here and, and describe for you this, this um, narrative that I lived under when I was in college. And it went something like this. The world works out for me. Things work out. Now, if you would have asked me that, I wouldn't have said that, but I had this deep down belief that the world was just going to reconstitute itself and reorient itself because I was favored in some way. So I say that because when this coach told me that his best friend was the judge, I kind of did this, of course, of course he's the judge. Of course this will get taken care of. I got the phone number. I went home. I called the judge. He answered the phone. I said, hi, my name's Kevin Brown. You don't know me, but I'm working this basketball camp with your buddy. And I explained the circumstances. There was silence on the other end. Finally, the judge spoke up and said, young man, were you driving recklessly? And I paused and I was like, uh, yes, sir, I was. He said, then let me tell you something. You're going to walk into my courtroom. You're going to stand in front of me and you're going to say guilty. Do you understand? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yes, yeah, sir. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Here's the reason I tell this story. What happened in that moment when the judge told me that was this narrative, this understanding I had from my life quickly went the other way. In other words, it just fell apart. I realized, oh, I'm not the favored one. Oh, the, the universe doesn't exist to reorient uh, its properties to my benefit and preferences. And the reason I say this is because I think this is an idea worth exploring within our faith life. And let me put it this way. How do we understand God when our lives or the lives of Christians around us don't go as planned? How do we understand pain and suffering, loss and confusion? Why is faithfulness 
sometimes met with extraordinary loss or difficulty and not with abundance and resolve. This morning, I will simply call this the problem of disappointment. Now, let me be clear. I'm not going to exhaust this issue in Hughes Auditorium on this Monday morning because it's such a big issue and has so much history within the faith tradition. But there are a few things I want to deal with related to this problem of disappointment. So a few things I want to say first. First and foremost, before I even get to that specific problem, it's important to recognize that when uh, we cry out at pain or loss or injustice, when we see wrongs around us and we speak out against those wrongs, we are suggesting that there is a way things should be. We're speaking to some kind of moral order in the universe. I think that's really important to point out. When we see injustice, when we cry out, we're speaking to a way things should be. I find it fascinating that my children, even before they could talk, they had a sense of injustice. They got more than me, right? And they can't, they can't articulate that, but they recognize some kind of imbalance or unfairness. This is inherent in us. We, we are in, within us. We have this embedded sense of the way things should be. Second, if we're going to talk about the despair of disappointment and pain, we also have to talk about the despair and disappointment of pleasure. Pascal, the great mathematician, person of faith, said, being unable to cure death Wretchedness and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. In other words, life becomes a distraction. And the most common distraction is pleasure. I've always been fascinated by W.H. Auden, the poet. And he has a a line uh, from uh, one of his, it was actually a play, The Age of Anxiety, where he says, faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play, lest we should see who we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. Keep the lights on, keep the music playing, keep up the entertainment, because we might discover otherwise that we're children scared of the dark who have never been happy or good. I had the opportunity some time ago to meet a TV producer. It's an individual that works on shows that you would be quite familiar with. I was like, wow, that's amazing. You get to work with all these Hollywood actors and actresses, people who are famous. And he just looked at me and said, I'll tell you, they're not happy people. Do they have it all? Yes, they're not happy people. It was Oscar Wilde who, in his famous book, The Picture of Dorian Gray, suggests that a life of hedonism, while it may be attractive on the surface, could be eroding one's soul, destroying and decaying their internal life. Here's the point. Pleasure is not enough to fulfill or satisfy. It was never meant to be, and there is just as much despair and pleasure as there can be in disappointment and pain. All right, this aside... Let me take a moment to talk about Christian narration, Christian storytelling, the arc of the narrative for people of faith. I had the opportunity to listen to Eric Loxmo. Some of you will be familiar with him. He is a a Hollywood writer. 
He's a speechwriter. He's a storyteller. He's a director. Uh, very talented individual. And he's a Christian. And, and referring to the Easter calendar or Easter holiday, uh, certainly one of the most important days within the Christian faith, he says, we tell stories sometimes that are Friday stories, good Friday stories, right? These have angst, pain, brokenness, suffering, loss. These are the gritty stories. But then there are the Easter Sunday stories. These are the stories of hope, light, future, victory, and power. Loxmo says, I'm a Saturday artist because we live in the Saturday. We live between uh, what has been and what will be when we think about the grand narrative of the Christian faith. And this offers, I think, a more faithful and even compelling way to think about Christian storytelling. We say this, or I say this, because sometimes our account of the Christian life does not make enough room for the fallen or the ugly or the nonlinear. I have a handful of sermons here from Hughes that I've deeply appreciated. One of those was from Dr. Chris Bounds. Many of you will remember him. Do you remember his testimony here? He talked about uh, he was just terrible in high school, ran around with a group of guys, and in particular, they made one teacher's life utterly miserable. So miserable that teacher quit his job and left education altogether. Years later, after a salvation experience, Dr. Bounds wrote an email to that teacher, former teacher, poured out his heart, said, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry for what I did to you. I never should have done that. Will you forgive me? Teacher wrote back and said, I will never forgive you. You ruined my life. You ruined the life of my family. I remember hearing that story and thinking like, wow, that didn't go the way I thought it would. Do you remember Phil Vischer, the VeggieTales creator? The person that they said would be the next Christian Walt Disney. And he came into Hughes and talked. But his story was how he built this empire and how it all fell to the ground. After a lawsuit, after having to lay people off, and then failing in his company. And having to figure out what did he really believe? What were the tenets of his faith at that point? I say this because sometimes we don't account enough for the Friday in our stories. But equally so, sometimes we don't account enough for the Sundays in our story. The hope and the light and the victory. I have no shortage of stories personally from churches, from Bible studies, personal acquaintances, where it seems like the center of the Christian message for these individuals is that we are broken, or everything that is wrong, or uh, how destitute and depraved we are. Now, that's certainly a part of the Christian story, but it's not the center of it. The Christian story is one of victory. It's one of hope. And when you drain the Christian narrative of hope and confidence and victory, you no longer have a Christian narrative. Easter is not just a symbol, Tish Harrison Warren says. The center of Christians, the Christian story is the resurrection. She writes this, If Jesus is risen in actual history... With all the palpability of flesh, fingers, bone, and blood, there is hope in our mourning. 
that we will be comforted and that death will not have the final word. Similarly, my wife Maria has said, if Christmas is just a birthday party for Jesus, I'm out. Jesus is the hope of all humanity, not just some domesticated consumeristic birthday party. We need to account for the Sunday portion in our stories. So let me end here by talking about how you see your life as a story. Now let me ask you a question. It's a, maybe a silly question, but when you read Exodus 5 that I mentioned before, did any of you have a crisis of faith in your life? What about the story of an imprisoned John the Baptist in Matthew 11? What about the story of Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers and later wrongly imprisoned? Did you have a crisis of faith when you first heard that story? Or the story of Queen Esther whose life and the life of her people was under threat? In general, when we see God's people experience despair in Scripture, we've never despaired or we've never questioned our faith because we know the end of the story. And here's the question, do you today, and Kevin Brown, do I today, do we view our lives as existing within a story right now? Do we see our lives as existing within a narrative and not just any narrative, but God's narrative? G.K. Chesterton said, I've always felt life first a story, and if there's a story, there's a story teller. I could give a lot of quotes from one of my favorite authors, Alistair McIntyre, but he says, we're born into stories. We're not born blank slates, ex nihilo, out of nowhere. We're born into a story. One of my favorite theologians says that we are story formed. So to know what to do, I have to know who I am. And to know who I am, I have to understand the story under which I exist. And what is that story? This is a part of your time here at Asbury to understand that story that you exist, to habituate yourself, to, to draw yourself further in, to let those narratives burrow their way into your imaginative landscape and color the way you see the world. This story that we're deliberately created by a deliberate creator, we're not as Bertrand Russell said a few centuries ago, an accidental collocation of atoms. Rather, we're created. And because we're created, we have a teleology, we have a purpose, an end or a good. Being made means we're made on purpose and therefore we have a purpose. We're lovers. We're attached to objects of love. To be a human is to love. It's to affix ourselves to objects of affection. We are doxological beings, as one person put it. And what we love and what we worship, we become. We believe that we're born with an inherent spiritual disease, what St. Augustine called original sin. We're corrupted, we're fallen, we're sinful, we're inept in ourselves to love what is right, and the essence of sin is a heart curved in on itself. Theologian Sarah Coakley says that sin has detoured the Godward direction of our desires. The French philosopher Simone Weil says barbarism is the permanent universal human characteristic. But there's good news. There's Jesus Christ, and we are saved through Christ. The essence of salvation is otherness, 
right relation with God and a right relationship with our neighbor, with others. We're not saved through our own effort. We're not saved because we're good. We are justified. We are put in right relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We believe that the death of Christ makes a difference for how we live our lives in this present age. We believe that God desires for us to live holy, upright, godly lives in the here and now. Though we're all citizens at a particular time and place in a particular geography, we believe we are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We are resident aliens, therefore, in the spaces that we occupy. And the citizenship, our heavenly citizenship, redefines our reality in the here and now, what we do, what we say, how we act, how we serve. We believe that Jesus is making all things new. I love this statement. We are living the future right now as people of faith. We're not just waiting around to go to heaven while the earth wastes away. Rather, we are ambassadors contributing to a new heaven and a new earth right now. We're the light of the world, and the fruit of the light is found, Paul says in Ephesians, in all that is good and in all that is right and in all that is true. We're light bearers. We are salt. We're a city upon the hill. We're to be a people that others look at us and say they are different and they're hopeful, and they're joyful, and they're ambassadors of peace, and they're agents of change. We're eudaimonists. All that means is we believe that living the upright, virtuous, holy life is the best version of ourselves. It's our best, blessed, happy life right now. We exist within a story, and how we see our life as a story will relate to how we live. Asbury, I think of the Amish community in Pennsylvania in 2007 who publicly expressed forgiveness to the shock of all of America, to the man who raced into a school and shot and killed all of their children. I think of the story of a pastor who I will leave unnamed, who learning that they had COVID and that their oxygen levels had dropped dramatically, drove to the hospital fearing their life sat there in the parking lot and said, you know, I've lived a good life. I'm ready to see Jesus Christ. And there are other people that need those hospital beds more than me. Got in the car, turned around and went home. I think of Michael Sharp, who went to do peace building work in the Democratic Republic of Congo with violent militias that were at war with one another. He was murdered. He was killed for the work that he did. And his father, when he heard the news, simply said, he was ready to give his life for that. In other words, what he was saying was, sometimes being a Christian is convenient. Sometimes it'll get you killed. We were ready to accept whatever reality we dealt with. I think of Mary Lyons, who was the president of Mount Holyoke Seminary for Women a few centuries ago, telling her students that a life of service is your best life. And upon their graduation, looking at them and saying, I'm telling you to go to the places no one else will go, and I'm telling you to do the things that no one else will do. And that school produced hundreds of missionaries who were willing to go to places that were unpopular or dangerous because of this vision. I think of Corey Tin Boom, who was imprisoned for hiding Jews. And prior to being imprisoned, someone had brought a Jewish baby to their household to hide. 
When others learned about that, they said, get rid of that child. It will get you killed. And Corey Tin Boom heard her father simply say, you say we could lose our lives for this child? I would consider that the greatest honor of my life and the greatest honor to come to that, this family. They saw their lives as existing in God's story. They were story formed. I think about our own community right here in Wilmore. I think of my friend Don Kane here in Wilmore, who has bad knees and he has bad hips. There's very little he can do, but he can sit across from a prisoner and share with them and listen to them and talk to them about Jesus and serve them. So that's precisely what he does every Sunday at Blackburn Prison. I think of the throngs of students who have left this institution to go and serve the world, to give up their life to Jesus Christ for the sake of others. And in finding their, or in losing their life, they find it, I would add. I think of the committed Christian families right here in Wilmore that say, you have a child that needs a family? I'll take it. I will take that child. I will care for them. I will be willing to be inconvenienced for them. I think of the people who earn as much money as they possibly can here in this town only so they can give it away. I think of the individuals who have worn out Bibles because they take Philippians 4, 8 seriously to populate their minds with what is good and right and true and excellent and worthy of praise. Let me end with this. Steve Deneff has spoken here often and he says this, if life is a story, and it is, you're born into one, he said, this is the plot. It's not just about you discovering yourself. It's about you losing yourself to something bigger than yourself because it was here before you got here and it will be here long after you're gone. That's the plot. As we start this semester, as we enter into a tumultuous period of time in our country, all the way down to our households. Don't forget the plot. You live in a story. And let's draw ourselves back over and over again, encouraging one another over and over again, bringing our lives to bear across Scripture over and over again, seeking the face of God and the Holy Spirit over and over again so that we exist in this story. That's the plot. And it's our best life. And it's a God-honoring, neighbor-serving life. Heavenly Father, please bless these students. Thank you for this story, Lord. Forgive us, God, when we make up our own stories, when we're enticed by other stories. Father, I pray that we would live in your narrative. We would remember the plot and that we would live inside of it. Jesus, I pray that your hand would be on these students, and I thank you right now, Lord, for the work that they are going to do right here in Wilmore, right on our campus, across the entire world, because they remember the plot. Father, we love you. I pray for your presence, and I ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.